On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the state of murder. Today, we're going to travel to Alaska, the last frontier, and we will have two cases. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. first Alaskan killer is Israel Keyes, who raped and killed random people around the U.S. And he killed these people after hiding murder kits in various places to facilitate his dark hobby. The confirmed number of deaths attributed absolutely to him is three, but Keyes admitted to killing several others. The FBI believes he killed 11. Who was Israel Keyes? He was born in January 7, 1978 in Richmond, Utah where he was raised in a Mormon family and where he was homeschooled. The family would move to Aladdin Road, north of Colville in Washington. There they attended a Christian identity church. In another place it said, not the name of the church, but that it was a white supremacist anti-Semitic church. So not one to take someone's word for it, I decided to look up this church myself. And there is a whole lot out there about it. I could spend an entire episode digging into it, but that's not what we're here for. Suffice it to say, it certainly does meet the criteria for white supremacy and an anti-Semitic organization. It is not the kind of place where you go for a bake sale. It seems like there aren't a lot of details, hard and fast and absolute, about Israel Key's early life. What we do have is what he himself referred to as, quote, aversion, unquote, of his life story. He confirms the devout Mormon family he was born into. He was the second of 10 children born to this family. Keyes began to show signs of psychopathy when he was young, like he would break into the neighbor's houses and steal weapons, and he admits to torturing animals. And just about everyone knows that that is a big old warning sign for future psychopathic behavior. The Keyes family was friends with the Kehoe family, The Kehoes had two sons named Chevy and Shane, who just so happened to be members of the Aryan People's Republic, and who would end up murdering three people in Arkansas. Interestingly, later in life, Keyes would reject religion altogether and profess to be an atheist. Keyes was in the Army from 1998 until 2000 at Fort Hood. He also served some time in Egypt. After he got out in 2007, he started his own construction business called Keyes Construction in Alaska. According to Keyes himself, he committed his first murder in 1998, shortly after entering the service. There aren't any details on this murder, but it's of note that other service members who were enlisted at the same time as Keyes remember him as frequently being drunk and withdrawn. 2001 is when Keyes really got busy on killing. By his admission, he would pick his victims either randomly or when the opportunity presented itself. His reasoning for this is because it would make it harder for anyone to tie him to these crimes since they happened in random places and to people who had no connection to Keyes. He claims to have put little murder kits around the country and when he was out either stashing stuff or actually killing, he would pay cash for everything. 
He would even go so far as to remove the battery from his cell phone as he was driving around so he couldn't be tracked. Since he raped and killed a woman in his teens, he figured he could keep on getting away with it. Now, he supposedly had his own so-called code. And that code was not to target or murder children. This code aside, he wasn't concerned at all with the amount of cruelty or lack of mercy for his other victims. The first confirmed murders were that of Bill and Lorraine Courier from Vermont, whose home he invaded, probably using one of his stashed murder kits. Bill and Lorraine's bodies were never found. According to Keyes, he flew from Alaska to Chicago on June 2nd, 2011. He then rented a car and drove a thousand miles to Vermont. He carried out a blitz-style attack, tied Bill and Lorraine up, and took them to an abandoned house. He shot and killed Bill, then he raped and strangled Lorraine. Keyes then rushed back home to Alaska so he could follow the case. The couriers being missing is known, but the bodies weren't found. And the abandoned house he killed them in ends up getting demolished, so I assume that is why the bodies were never found. He is telling police about this later, and even though they have no bodies, I'm sure they were busy confirming that he did fly from Alaska, that he rented a car, etc., which is why these two murders are considered two of the three confirmed. Keyes will tell the FBI that there are four other murders in Washington state, but he didn't or wouldn't give them details on the crimes or give them names. While Israel Keyes is busy killing, he is also living a fairly normal life. The area he lived in, called Turnigan, was one of Anchorage's best neighborhoods, and by all accounts, he appeared to be living a quiet life. This neighborhood was home to a lot of attorneys, prominent Anchorage citizens, and even law enforcement. He lived there with his daughter and a girlfriend. Senator Hollis French lived just around the corner from Keyes, and he said that Keyes was well-known as a good handyman. Once you find out what Keyes is up to, it's easy to see why he will later say, while being interviewed, that he was two different people. As I said before, the earliest crime that Keyes admitted to was the sexual assault of a teenage girl between 1996 and 1998 in Oregon. The girl was somewhere between 14 and 18, and this is the one victim he didn't kill. He gave the police details about the assault, and they go back to see if there are any reports of the assault, but none were ever filed. As for the first killing, it took place in Washington State sometime in the late 90s. As a specialist in the U.S. Army, he was at some point stationed at Fort Lewis between the years of 98 and 2001. He also lived in Colville, Washington as well. Israel Keyes did not have any felonies on his record, but he had been cited for driving without a valid license and at some point for driving under the influence. I say all this to point out, Keyes is claiming to have other kills, and the FBI have to use this information to pinpoint where Keyes was and when, and see if there are any unsolved murders or missing people, anything that might connect in any way to the stories Keyes is telling. If I haven't lost you completely yet, you might be wondering how did Keyes get caught in the first place for him to even be making these confessions to police. On February 1st, 2012, Keyes snatched Samantha Koenig from the coffee shop she worked at. Security video shows the abduction happening. He imprisons her, steals her debit card, rapes her, and then the next day, he kills her. 
He leaves Samantha's body in a shed and goes on a two-week cruise with his family because that's what normal people do. They rape and murder someone and then go jump on a cruise ship and have cocktails and midnight buffets. He gets back from the cruise and gets Samantha's body out of the shed. He puts some makeup on her and sews her eyes open with fishing line to make her look alive. He also puts beside her a newspaper dated February 13th, which is 12 days after he abducted her. Once the scene is set, he takes a Polaroid picture. On the back of the photo, he writes a ransom demand for $30,000. He sends a text message from Samantha's phone to her boyfriend, giving him directions to the location of the ransom note, which was at a dog park. Dunn Keys then dismembers Samantha's body and puts her remains in a frozen lake outside of Anchorage. He used a chainsaw to open a hole so he could dispose of Samantha's remains. The ransom photo is online, and even though I knew she wasn't alive in the picture, it is hard to tell that she isn't. You could say that greed led to Key's capture. It wasn't the killing or the body disposal that got him caught. It was the ransom. Her family actually paid the ransom, and it didn't take a whole lot for the authorities to track the money. On March 13, 2012, Keyes was pulled over for speeding, and in his possession was Samantha's debit card. Texas Rangers arrested him in Lufkin, Texas. Also, the vehicle Keyes was driving was captured by an ATM in Texas, so there's that. Keyes was extradited back to Alaska. He not only confessed, but told authorities about other crimes and seemed to be quite happy to do it. He offered to give law enforcement the, quote, blow by blow on those crimes. When asked about a motive, he basically said, well, why not? His tune seemed to change a bit, though, because in May, while at a hearing, Keyes broke his leg irons and attempted to escape from the courtroom. He didn't manage it. He was snagged and restrained again. And how do you break leg irons? I cannot work that one out. Since the attempt at escape from authorities had failed, Keyes came up with another kind of escape. And this time he succeeded. On December 2nd, 2012, after hiding a razor blade in his cell at the Anchorage Correctional Complex, he committed suicide by cutting one of his wrists and strangling himself with a bedsheet. The note he left behind gave no new information on the additional victims he claimed to have. The suicide note, if you want to call it that, is a long, weird, rambling poem, basically. In 2020, Alaskan authorities released what they say is also a part of Key's suicide note. It was a drawing of 11 skulls, a pentagram, and a caption written in his own blood that said, quote, we are one. FBI sources believe this to be Key's acknowledgement of the 11 lives he claims to have taken. Under the second case, let's talk about Robert Franklin Stroud, also known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. What, you may ask, does Alcatraz have to do with Alaska? You would not be wrong to ask that, and I intend to tell you. Robert Franklin Stroud was born in Seattle, Washington on January 28, 1890. His parents were Elizabeth and Ben Stroud, and he was their first child together. Elizabeth had two daughters from an earlier marriage. This newly formed family of five became six when Elizabeth and Ben had a second son in 1897. His name was Marcus. Elizabeth was a devoted mother who had her hands full. 
not only with a bunch of kids, but she had to protect those kids from their father, who was not only an alcoholic, but an abusive one. She wasn't super successful at keeping the kids safe from Ben, though, and the children were often physically as well as emotionally abused by their dad. Robert seriously disliked his father, and really, who could blame him for that? In 1903, at age 13, with only a third-grade education, Robert ran away from home and started traveling across America. He'd do little jobs here and there and make a little money, enough not to starve to death, but despite this, he really enjoyed being out on the road and away from his abusive father. Around age 17, Robert did go back home and found out that in his four-year absence, things had improved greatly in a financial sense for his parents, but the relationship had improved and had, in fact, declined. This was not just because of Ben's alcoholism, but because he liked to go out and be with other women as well. Robert doesn't want to hang around for long, so he heads out again, and this time he decides to go up to Alaska to look for work. It is the summer of 1908, and 18-year-old Robert is working for a railroad in Katala, Alaska. While it's a physical job, it also pays well. Eventually, the job will move Robert to Cordova, and this is where he meets Kitty O'Brien. Kitty is a dance hall girl and a prostitute. Whether they had an actual relationship or more of a business one isn't clear. It seems Robert became Kitty's pimp, though other people claim that Kitty and Robert were actually in love. Either way, they were working together a lot, and pimping for Kitty wasn't Robert's only job. He had others like working in construction and even being a popcorn vendor at some point. Robert has an old acquaintance named F.K. Von Dahmer, who goes by Charlie. This is someone he and Kitty knew from their days back in Catala. Charlie was a well-dressed bartender, age 28, with a shady reputation. In August of 1908, Charlie tells Robert that he is headed to a new job in Juneau, a bustling gold town at the time. He had nothing but good things to say about the growing city, and this intrigued Robert. He convinced Kitty that they too should go to the capital city and make a new start. Would turn out to be not such a great idea. On January 18, 1909, something happens. There's a couple of different accounts, but the outcome is the same. Kitty either performed her services for Charlie and he refused to pay, or Charlie beat Kitty up, maybe both. Either way, Robert is not going to stand for that. He goes to confront Charlie and they end up fighting. In the end, Robert shoots and kills Charlie. Police reports say that Charlie was actually knocked unconscious and while on the ground, Robert shot and killed him. They know it was Robert because after he did it, Robert went to the police station and turned himself and the gun used to commit the murder over to police. Elizabeth Stroud gets word that her son is in trouble and she gets a lawyer for Robert. He is found guilty of manslaughter on August 23, 1909 and sentenced to 12 years to be served at the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island. In case you're wondering why he was sent to a federal prison, it's because Alaska was not a state in 1909 and it did not have its own judiciary system, so the feds handled it. Robert wasn't what you'd call an ideal prisoner while at McNeil Island. He was known for being very violent. It seems Robert had tried to get his hands on some morphine, and when a hospital orderly reported him to prison administration, Robert assaulted him. 
He also stabbed another inmate who was involved in trying to smuggle narcotics. This bad behavior resulted in Robert being sentenced to an additional six months on September 5th, 1912, and he was subsequently transferred to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Initially, Robert's behavior didn't change, but over the course of a few years, things improved as far as Robert's mind went. He enrolled in some correspondence courses, including structural engineering, astronomy, and physical science. Even though he only had a third grade education, people were surprised that Robert not only seemed to do very well in these courses, but he got exceptionally high marks. He also began to dig into religious and spiritual philosophies. Things are going pretty good until 1915. Robert starts suffering chronic pain and ends up being diagnosed with Bright's disease. One of the main problems with this disease is inflammation of the kidney. This results in high blood pressure, fever, and facial swelling. Robert was six foot three, but as the pain began to take over his life, he lost a lot of weight. And he became convinced that he was going to die in prison and not get to see his family again. And if we remember, he was sentenced to 12 years with an additional six months for the assaults on McNeil Island. So he must have been in a lot of pain because he didn't think he was even going to live that long. During this whole time, his mother, Elizabeth, was traveling to Kansas to see him. When she realized how serious his illness was, she wrote a letter to the United States Attorney General begging for her son to be released. She received no answer. In time, Robert began to show some signs of improvement, but he was still weak. While he was recovering, he spent a lot of time in his cell. Because of this, he began to suffer detachment, and because of the chronic pain, he was growing depressed and angry. The situation wasn't improved by a tense relationship he had with a rather overbearing guard named Andrew Turner. Turner was fond of using his club, and he seemed to enjoy taunting prisoners. In March of 1916, Marcus Stroud, Robert's brother, finally came to Leavenworth to see him. But when Marcus got there, they refused to let him see Robert. This infuriated Robert. As we already know, he's pretty much isolated due to his disease, and he's depressed, thinking he won't get to see his family members. He thinks he's going to die. Robert is venting to a fellow inmate, which apparently at the time is a no-no. The guard, Turner, overhears it and reports it to the higher-ups, saying that Robert's breach of silence was not allowed. The outcome of this report is that Robert's visiting privileges are revoked. This only makes Robert angrier. On March 26, 1916, Robert goes to the dining hall. Present are over a thousand prisoners. During the meal, Robert raises his hand and Turner approaches. Some words are exchanged, but due to the sheer amount of men present and the noise level, no one actually hears what is said by either man. Turner reaches for his club like he's going to hit Robert. Robert grabs a hold of the club and a struggle ensues. Out of his shirt, Robert produces a knife and stabs Turner in the chest. The guard falls to the floor, dead. Immediately, he is seized by guards and taken to solitary confinement. Robert remains there until trial for the murder of Andrew Turner. The U.S. attorney at the time, Fred Robertson, is working really hard to try to convince the state of Texas to reintroduce the execution law, which had been abolished prior to this. 
When Robert's mother gets wind of the murder of the guard, she hires General Elsie Boyle to defend her son. Boyle had a reputation for being one of the very best defense attorneys, but how do you defend someone who murdered another person in front of more than a thousand witnesses? In May of 1916, the case went before Judge John Pollock and a jury of 12. Both defense and prosecution had witnesses who testified to the murder. After four days, Robert Stroud was found guilty of first-degree murder, and on May 27th, he was sentenced to death by hanging on July 21st of the same year. Boyle immediately began the appeal process, and in December of 1916, the entire trial was thrown out. It was thrown out because the members of the jury, while giving him a guilty verdict, did not say that they wanted the death sentence imposed. Another trial date is set. In the time between trials, Elizabeth is talking to everyone and anyone to try to prevent her son from being put to death. Her main point of argument was that the state executions had been abolished for decades prior, and it was unjust to reinstate it just in time to kill her son. She petitioned different women's organizations and penal reform groups, and here she found the support she needed. These groups were very vocal in saying that they were against capital punishment. The protest really ticked off Judge Pollock, so much so that he was having a hard time being objective, which is pretty important in a judge. Eventually, this behavior got the best of him, and Judge Pollock was disqualified, and Judge Woodruff was named for the second trial, which was scheduled for May 22, 1917. The defense team for Robert tried to show that their client was mentally unbalanced and not responsible for the murder. They even brought forward several psychiatrists that agreed with the defense that Robert was not only insane, but psychopathic. The defense also tried to show that Robert was acting in self-defense at the time of the murder. There were many witnesses that stated how violent Turner was and how he frequently beat inmates with the club. Many of these witnesses saw Turner pull the club to hit Robert before Robert stabbed him. Now, the prosecution wanted to prove that Robert was a cold-blooded killer and that he had had enough mental capacity to know what he was doing and what the consequences of his actions would be. They had their own psychiatrist who claimed Robert was mentally competent. On May 28, 1917, after several hours of deliberation, the jury came back with another guilty verdict. But they did not come back with the death penalty. He was instead given a life sentence. But my friends, that's not it. Even though his life was spared, Robert wasn't happy with how the trial went. He thought the whole thing was unfair because his defense team was not allowed to bring forward critical evidence. And they also weren't allowed to subpoena witnesses to help support Robert. It was also pointed out that the state used illegally obtained evidence against him. Robert decided to challenge the court yet again. His attorneys appealed the ruling, saying that Robert's constitutional rights were denied. This time, the U.S. Supreme Court stepped in and ruled that the trial was invalid, and a third trial was set for May of 1918. Judge Robert Lewis was appointed to oversee the hearing, but on the day it was to begin, none of Robert's lawyers showed up. Judge Lewis was not at all happy. He disqualified those lawyers and appointed new ones. Robert was stunned and confused. That would only increase when he finds out that his previous lawyers had, behind his back, 
negotiated with the prosecution to enter a plea of guilty to second-degree murder. Robert announced that the plea was made without his consent, and he also had issue with new lawyers who knew nothing about his case being appointed to him and say that they would not have time to adequately prepare to defend him. Judge Lewis agreed and delayed the trial. June of 1918, the third trial began. A week of trial ensued, evidence on both sides was presented, and closing arguments were given. On June 28th, the jury comes back with first-degree murder, and this jury is in support of death by hanging to take place in November of the same year. Robert's lawyers appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a temporary delay in execution so they can take a closer look at the case. In November of 1919, the Supreme Court comes back and is in favor of upholding the death sentence imposed on Robert and says no more hearings are allowed. The execution is scheduled for April 23, 1920. Elizabeth Stroud has only one option left in her attempts to save her son's life. She files a petition for executive clemency. She includes in that letter facts about Robert's troubled past and the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father. She also includes the troubles with the various trials and the negative impact all of this had on the entire family. President Woodrow Wilson ends up with that petition and he orders a halt to the execution of Robert Stroud. Instead of death by hanging, he would serve life in prison. Thanks to Elizabeth's unwavering love for her son, and President Wilson's big heart, apparently, Robert was spared execution. The warden of Leavenworth, T.W. Morgan, wasn't at all pleased with the decision to give Stroud a reprieve from the death sentence. He was able to persuade President Wilson to stipulate that life in prison meant life in solitary confinement. He succeeded in this. Robert was transferred to the segregation cells on the isolation ward. He was allowed no contact with other prisoners and only 30 minutes a day of exercise in the courtyard. While many would not have been pleased with this arrangement, Robert considered it a new opportunity. Now we get to the Birdman part, but not yet the Alcatraz part. Stick with me. So while at Leavenworth, Stroud found some injured sparrows. He took those birds and used all of the hours of solitary confinement taking care of them and raising them. Eventually, he switched from sparrows to canaries. He would raise these canaries and then sell them and use the money to buy more supplies for the birds and to send money to his mother. Eventually, Leavenworth's administration changed and the new warden found what Stroud was up to quite intriguing. He wanted to present Leavenworth as a progressive rehabilitation penitentiary. In order to accomplish this, the warden gave Stroud cages, chemicals, and paper to conduct his activities. Visitors to the prison were shown Stroud's little aviary, and many of those visitors purchased canaries from him. Over the course of many years, Robert raised over 300 canaries and wrote two books. One book was called Diseases of Canaries, and the other was Stroud's Digest on the Diseases of Birds. He made a few important contributions to avian pathology. He also gained himself some affection from the bird lovers community. Though the attention might have been good for the prison, it did start to cause some issues as time went on. According to prison regulations, every letter that was sent or received at the prison had to be opened, read, copied, and approved. 
Because of Stroud's wide-ranging business and contacts, this required a full-time secretary to handle. So there was the little issue of birds and bird droppings. Most of the birds he kept were allowed to fly freely in his cell. And you can imagine the condition the cell was in. And by proxy, Robert was not doing so well in the personal hygiene department. In 1931, the prison attempted to stop his bird business and to get rid of his birds. Thanks to a friend of Robert's named Delamay Jones, who was a fellow bird lover, a massive petition writing campaign and media campaign story gets out there. Della was able to send a petition with 50,000 signatures to the president. The public complaints resulted in Robert being allowed to keep the birds, and even in him being allowed to have a second cell in which to keep them. But the prison got one lick in. They were able to put a big squash on his letter-writing privileges. As seems to be habit for Robert, he ticked off the powers that be once again. He put an advertisement in a publication announcing the fact that he hadn't received any of the royalties from the book sales. The publishing company, which I'm sure was embarrassed, decided to get back at him by complaining to the warden. The end result was that the prison started the paperwork to have Robert transferred to Alcatraz, where his bird days would be over. Robert got wind of it and found a loophole. It was this. If he was married in Kansas, they had to keep him in Kansas. At the time, marriage was only a piece of paper signed by both parties. His friend Della Jones was willing to help him stay put, so they got married. When the prison officials found this out, they were pissed off. To retaliate, they refused to let him correspond with his wife or his mother. As for Elizabeth, when she got wind that Robert had gotten married, she cut off all contact with them. Let me pause here and ask, do you think that's weird? She ran to his defense when he committed murder twice. She moved mountains to prevent his execution. But when he gets married, and only to save his birds, she disowns him. That is very weird if you ask me. Back to topic. Despite the lack of contact with Della, Stroud was able to keep the birds and continue on with the canary selling business. Robert continued to conduct research and make note of his observations. He was doing so well that J. Edgar Hoover bought a canary from Robert to give to his mother. In 1937, after serving 29 years, Robert was eligible for parole. He applied for early release with the hopes that he could continue on with his research, but it was not to be. He was denied. For the next two years, Robert immersed himself in his research and his writings. Through this, he discovered another cure for yet another bird disease. He wrote another book, which included illustrations he drew himself. His brother Marcus helped him to get Stroud's Digest on the Diseases of Birds, published in 1942. Throughout this time frame, Robert's health was steadily declining. He got pneumonia, which almost killed him, and he was still suffering from Bright's disease. On top of this, he was having issues with his prostate. Because of all of these things, Robert was in constant chronic pain. You'd think things were as bad as they could get, wouldn't you? Well, they weren't. On December 15, 1942, Robert was woken up in the early morning hours and taken from his cell. 26 years, but his transfer had come through. He was going to the maximum security prison on a remote island in San Francisco Bay. You guessed it, Alcatraz. 
Opened in 1861, Alcatraz was mostly a military prison compound. In 1934, civilian criminals from three other prisons were sent there. Most of these were your hardcore convicts like George Machine Gun Kelly, Floyd Hamilton, and Al Capone. The prison itself had a bad reputation across the country and was known as the hellhole and as the rock. The daily routine was super strict. Most inmates had very few, if any, privileges. According to an article on Alcatraz by Michael Esslingers, some of the prisoners weren't even allowed to talk. They couldn't have reading material or have visits from relatives. If any of the codes were violated, inmates had to wear a 12-pound ball with ankle chains, were beaten and banished to an isolation cell called The Hole. A lot of inmates went crazy, some tried to escape, and some even committed suicide. When Robert headed there in December of 1937, he was well aware of the reputation of Alcatraz. At The Rock, he was no longer allowed to keep birds, but they did allow him to continue reading his bird journals and to communicate through letters with other bird lovers. He was also allowed several hours a week in the prison yard to exercise. They allowed Robert to access the library where he started digging into law books. Eventually, he began to petition the federal courts for early release. He pointed out in these numerous letters that his incarceration had been unusually long and that it constituted cruel and unusual punishment. All of his petitions were dismissed. Robert funneled his anger and frustration with the system into writing. He chronicled the history of the federal prison system but he did it from the convict's perspective. It was titled, Looking Outward, a history of the U.S. prison system from colonial times to the formation of the Bureau of Prisons. That's a long damn title. Robert wanted to shed light on the penal system and what he saw as its disintegration. This was actually the second book he wrote concerning prison. The other was a biography. Throughout the time he is writing these books, he is very ill, and the chronic pain from his kidneys and gallbladder are so extreme that he is transferred to the prison hospital so he can be medicated. Robert kept filing petitions, these to the Supreme Court, but his requests were consistently denied. Weary and in pain, Robert tried to take his own life by overdosing on pain meds in December 1951. He failed and woke up still inside the prison walls. In 1959, after having served 50 years behind bars, Robert was sent to a minimum security prison hospital in Springfield, Missouri. He had more freedom there than he ever had anywhere else, but he still wanted to be a truly free man. He kept petitioning the Supreme Court. Robert did gain his freedom, but not in the way he wanted. At age 73, after 54 years behind bars, Robert Strout, the birdman of Alcatraz, died of natural causes in his prison hospital room. And that will do it for this episode. Next week, we are going to Arizona, and we're going to flip genders, and let's talk about some women killers. Hang tight for the final crumb, but in the meantime, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Crime Biscuit or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Israel Keys was truly a piece of human garbage, and I can't say I'm sorry he took himself out. As for Robert Stroud, I'd be lying if I didn't admit I was kind of rooting for him to get out at the very end. 
don't hold that against me. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. <laughs>